I want to underscore something that David said uh, last week about the column that appeared in the faith page of uh, Saturday's statement, statement a week ago by Reverend Edelin. Uh, some of you may have been uh, distressed or puzzled by some of the material in that column. I was mostly puzzled because as he discussed the word covet, I realized he was saying things about that word that I had never heard before. And I thought perhaps I had overlooked something in my study or my training had been deficient in some regard. So I ransacked every book in my library uh, uh, that had any level or depth of scholarship to it to see if I could track down exactly where he was coming from. And uh, as you remember, he uh, uh, adds to the meaning of the word some connotations of superstition and witchcraft and casting spells and so on. Uh, I looked at every reference book I could get my hands on, and there is just not a shred of evidence anywhere for his uh, discussion of that word. I don't have any idea where he came up with the attachment of covet to superstition and witchcraft, but there's no basis for it in fact, so you no longer need to be uh, troubled by that if you ever were. It's clear that the word simply means to desire or to long for. It means the same thing in the related languages of Ugaritic and Arabic. The Greek term that's used to translate it means exactly the same thing, and there are no hidden little secret nuances to that word. It simply means you are not to long for something that belongs to someone else, and it means the same thing today that it meant then and still applies to us today. So, enough of that. I'd like for you to turn to Acts chapter 3 with me today. We have uh, for us in the first uh, ten verses of this chapter of Acts 3 a, uh, what we could consider a one-act play in four scenes. Play is fiction, whereas this is reality, but nevertheless it proceeds somewhat in that fashion. We discovered last week in verse 43 of chapter 2 that during this period of the early church, many... Uh, wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Luke singles out one of these wonders and signs here in the opening verses of chapter 3, and I believe he picks this particular miracle, uh, omitting others, because of the consequences that followed upon this miracle. In the rest of chapter 3, which David will discuss next week, you will see that Peter is given an occasion as a result of this miracle to preach a sermon which results in the conversion of several thousand Jews expands the membership of the church. It was significant in that respect. And also we find that as a result of this miracle and the public uproar that was created by it, uh, Peter and John were dragged before the Sanhedrin, arrested and made to appear before the ruling body in Jewish affairs. So for the first time, these disciples of Jesus were face to face with the Jewish religious authorities, and it was this miracle which precipitated that encounter. So Luke, I believe, selects it for that reason. Now, as any good uh, playwright does, he introduces us to the protagonists in the first scene. Let's look at verse 1 first of all. Luke begins his account. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Peter, of course, is the most predominant and prominent member of the apostolic band in the opening chapters of the book of Acts. Through chapter 12, he is the pivotal figure in the history of the early church. We could almost entitle those first 12 chapters of Acts as the Acts of the Apostle Peter because he is very much in the spotlight. He has already asserted a leadership role in the early church, as we've seen in the first two chapters. Uh, it was at his instigation that the 
the place that Judas had vacated among the apostles was filled by Matthias in chapter 2 when the gift of tongues uh, and the gift of the Holy Spirit was given. Peter was the one that seized that opportunity to proclaim the gospel and resulted in the uh, conversion of 3,000 souls. So already in these early chapters, these early weeks following Christ's death and resurrection, Peter's leadership abilities have surfaced and he has risen to the front. But as you're aware from reading the gospel accounts, Peter was not always like this. Uh, We read the accounts in the gospels and find out that Peter uh, was very impulsive. He was uh, headstrong. He was uh, a picture of instability who blew hot and cold and continually engaged his mouth before he engaged his brain. And yet that Peter, the Lord gave a nickname to, the nickname Rock. He indicated by that that Peter one day, although he was not now, one day Peter would be a rock. He would be a symbol of stability and uh, consistency and faithfulness, someone who could handle the pressure. And uh, yet Peter never demonstrated that quality of life in uh, the time he walked with the Lord. Well, it's clear then that the only thing that can explain this difference, this new man that we see in Peter, is the bestowal of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Spirit in Peter's life has already begun to make these changes in his fundamental character. And I think this reminds us that uh, just as the Lord gave Peter this nickname long before he demonstrated any of these qualities, the Lord loves us as we are, but he not... He does not see us as we are, but he sees us for what we will become by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've got a similar story with John. Uh, He is a very familiar figure to us through the uh, gospel accounts as well. This John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was the disciple in the upper room discourse who leaned on the breast of the Lord in a very intimate moment around the uh, Lord's table. So we can say, I think, safely that this John was the Lord's best friend. Uh, This John was the best friend that the Lord had in his incarnate life on earth. Now, as I considered John and what kind of person would be a likely candidate to be the disciple whom Jesus loved, I instinctively thought that this man would have been someone who was gentle, uh, who was kind, rather shy and retiring, someone kind of laid back and calm and serene, someone to whom the Lord would be attracted. But I discovered as I read the Gospels that that picture of John just won't stand up to scrutiny. Uh, for one thing, the Lord gave him a nickname just as he gave Peter a nickname. And the nickname that he gave to John and to his brother was Sons of Thunder. Now, that's not the kind of a nickname you give to a Casper Milk Toast. You do not call someone like that a son of thunder. Later, we find that as Jesus is traveling through Samaria with his apostolic band, there was a Samaritan village which gave him a particularly rude welcome. And uh, John, being the gracious person that he was, uh, immediately offered to the Lord to call down fire from heaven and consume this unsuspecting little Samaritan village. So John was not the quiet, mousy kind of man you might expect. He was rough and uh, rugged. And yet he was the man that was the most intimate companion of the Lord when he walked on earth. Now maybe you fit into John's category. Maybe you feel a lot more comfortable with a a pair of uh, white boots on and a uh, gun or a fishing rod in one hand rather than a Bible. Well, there's hope for you because just as 
John was an intimate companion of the Lord, you can be too. But we see that John too changed as the Spirit began to work and impart his life in him. This John, who was a son of thunder and who wanted to see a Samaritan village destroyed and wiped off the face of the map, became the one man in the New Testament that's most closely identified with love. He is known as the Apostle of Love. So he changed, he mellowed, he became a man of compassion and love in his later years. And that's the work the Spirit produced. Well, perhaps you are a Peter or a John in personality. Perhaps you're married to somebody like that. You may be uh, inconsistent and unstable and impetuous. You may be married to someone like that. You may be rough and rugged and macho and all that. Or you may be married to someone like that. Well, this, the story of these two men is an encouragement to us that there's hope. We will not always be what we are today. By God's grace, the work of his spirit, we will change. We will become more mature in these areas. Uh, when my wife and I were going through premarital counseling, we took a temperament analysis test, which read out this nice little profile of what our personalities were like. And uh, there's one category on this personality profile which rates you uh, in terms of your sympathy uh, versus indifference. And we took this test, and uh, our figures were, our results were plotted on this graph. And the way this graph operates, there is a central zone, which is considered desirable level of behavior in this regard. There is a, it's a dark gray. Then there's a little lighter gray zone, which uh, is acceptable. Then there is a very light gray zone which says needs improvement. And then beyond that, there's just white. And the answer key doesn't say anything about uh, what happens if you fall into the white part of this graph. Well, it turns out that both Debbie and I fell into the white portion of this graph on opposite ends of that spectrum. <laughs> she was rated completely off the chart in oversensitivity, and I was rated completely off the chart in indifference. And, uh, and lack of sympathy. Well, you know, that's just tailor-made to create problems and conflicts in marriage. And we have discovered that instinctively I tend to think that Debbie is overreacting and is oversensitive and she regards me in situations of conflict as someone who is indifferent and does not care. But we were committed to go ahead and get married despite what we had discovered about each other. And the reason was that we knew we had access to the Holy Spirit that we were not left to work out these personality problems and conflicts ourselves. We had access to the same spirit that transformed Peter and John, and that same spirit is active in you today. Now, Peter and John were part of the inner circle of the Lord. There were three men that formed his closest circle of friends, Peter, James, and John. And Peter and John were present at several critical periods in the life, the life of the Lord, present at times when no other of the disciples were present. When Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead, Peter and John and James were the only ones in the room with the Lord. Uh, when the Lord was, appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, again, Peter and John were the only ones there along with James. When the Lord gave the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, Peter, James, and John again alone were present. When the Lord uh, agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was Peter and James and John that he took with him into the inner part of the garden. And this suggests to us that one of the Lord's principles of ministry was to spend quality time with a hand-picked few men. 
the men that were the most responsive to the truth and to the Lord, these were the men that the Lord invested his quality time in. And these men did not have a lot to offer from a worldly standpoint in terms of education, in terms of a personality or willpower, in terms of their status in the community. But the Lord saw in them a faithful, responsive heart, and he invested his quality time in these men. And here we can see that strategy paying off as these men now assuming the burden of building this early church do so with courage, with poise, and with grace. And I would encourage you to imitate their example as you come across uh, men and women in your circle of acquaintances who have a hunger to grow and a heart to mature. These are the people to spend your quality time with. Encourage them in their faith. Pray with them. Study the scriptures with them because that's the Lord's pattern of producing leaders for the church. Now, we also know that Peter and John were close friends. Not only were they close friends of the Lord, but they were close friends with each other. Uh, the Lord sent them to prepare the Passover together. Uh, the night the Lord was betrayed, they together went into the courtyard of the high priest. The morning of the resurrection, it was Peter and John together who ran to the tomb to investigate Mary's story. We see them operating here together, going to the temple at the hour of prayer. When the gospel spreads to Samaria in chapter 8, it is Peter and John together who go down there to check on the fledgling church in Samaria. And later, uh, Paul will refer to these two men as pillars of the church. So they operated in ministry as a team, Peter and John as a team, and their, their teamwork was predicated on their friendship together. And I would encourage you to do the same as you are involved in certain ministry endeavors. Encourage your close friends to become a part of that ministry with you. Encourage them to be a part of a team that reaches out in ministry. Now we see that these men were going to the temple. This was after the resurrection, after the bestowal of the Spirit. And yet they still continued to be worshiping and practicing Jews. And we find down through the early years of church history that the early Christian Jews continued to worship in the temple and continued to be ritually observant Jews until they were actually thrown out of the temple and thrown out of the synagogues. Now they go up to the temple, Luke tells us, at the ninth hour or the hour of prayer. The ninth hour would have been three o'clock in the afternoon. And this was the time when the second of the two daily sacrifices were offered. Uh, A one-year-old lamb was offered twice a day, once at nine in the morning, and again at three o'clock in the afternoon. And in conjunction with that sacrifice, a prayer service was held, and Peter and John are going to the temple to participate in the sacrifice and the prayer service that accompanied it. Now, you will remember that on the day of Pentecost, when Peter stood up, his argument to counter the contention that the apostles were drunk was that it was only 9 o'clock in the morning. It was only the third hour. And the reason that Peter and John and the other apostles were gathered there together and the reason that the multitudes were thronging the temple precincts was because that was when the first sacrifice of the day was offered and they were there for that first sacrifice and for the service of prayer. Now, he introduces us, Luke does, to the other protagonist in this story in verse 2. A certain man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. A word on the temple structure might be in order here. Uh, The way the temple was constructed, the very outer court was called the Court of the Gentiles. 
anyone could mingle in that courtyard. You passed through a series of gates, nine of them all together, ringed around the inner circle, which was called the Court of Women. And into this court, all Israelites could go, both men and women. Within that enclosure was an enclosure called the Court of Israel. And in this enclosure, only Jewish men could go. Within that enclosure was the court of the priests, where the altar was, and within that enclosure only priests could appear. And then inside that enclosure was the actual sanctuary itself, which had the holy place and the holy of holies. Now, this gate, which is called Beautiful, was one of those nine gates which enabled people to pass from the court of the Gentiles into the court of women. So both Israelite men and women would pass from the court of the Gentiles through this beautiful gate into the court of women. This beautiful gate is still standing today, by the way. It is sealed up, but it is still standing in Jerusalem today. It's about 50 feet high. It's the most uh, magnificent of the gates in the temple area. It was made out of Corinthian bronze, which led Josephus, who was one of the early historians, to say that this gate exceeded all of the other gates, even those that were made of silver and gold in splendor and in magnificence. And this was the gate that this poor beggar had chosen to uh, rest. Now, uh, begging was a despised occupation at that time, but this man, although he was held in contempt by many of the Jews, nevertheless was a pretty sharp cookie. And I want to tell you why. If you were going to beg in the state of Idaho, you would pick the best possible corner with the most traffic, most likely to succeed. Uh, you'd probably pick Fairview and Cole. Uh, when I, I noticed that when the students from BSU go on their hobo days, they've just always got Fairview and Cole just blanketed with a whole plethora of uh, hobos to gather contributions from passing motorists. Well, this man had the same kind of savvy. He parked himself at the gate called Beautiful, so that as Jews passed from the court of the Gentiles into the court of women, they would see this marvelous, splendorous gate, and it would be in stark contrast to this poor beggar sitting at their feet. And not only that, he did not set up shop out on the street where the riffraff would pass by, but he set up shop in the temple precincts where only the devout Jews would go. Uh, when you come across the term sinners in the Gospels, that's simply a reference to the Jews who did not practice the law, had no concern for temple ritual and so on. But this man knew that the best targets were devout Jews, so he stationed himself right where devout Jews would pass. And not only that, he picked a spot that both Jewish men and women would pass. Now, if uh, your wife is anything like mine, she tends to be a pretty soft touch for someone with a good story. Uh, if you want to sell Girl Scout cookies or tickets to school carnivals, you just come by our place and we can probably do you some favors. So he was smart. He knew that his chances were better if he could appeal both to men and, as well, to women. So that's where he had stationed himself. Now, the story uh, picks up in verses 3 through 5 as the protagonists are brought together. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple... He began asking to receive alms. And Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze upon him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. 
Luke tells us that Peter and John fixed their gaze on this man. This is the same word that Luke uses in chapter 1 to describe the apostles as they gazed into heaven after the ascending Lord. Certainly the first time they'd ever seen anything remotely like that. That's a little commonplace for us in the age of Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back, but this was certainly the first time they've ever seen a special effect like that. And you can imagine the intensity of their gaze as they followed the Lord as he disappeared from sight. Luke uses the same word here. Peter and John fixed their gaze on this man, looked him right in the eye. And Luke tells us in verse uh, 5 that he stared right back. He began to give them his attention. He stared him right back, eyeball to eyeball. And this suggests, by the way, that uh, this is probably an eyewitness account, that Luke probably picked Peter's brain for the details of this account. It just has those marks of an eyewitness event. Now, this man evidently figured he had a score here. He expected to receive something from them. Here, finally, were two men that paid him some attention, and he figured the uh, coins were about to spring into his little cup. Uh, And the rabbis at this time, by the way, were uh, exalting the almsgiving as an act of righteousness. Some of the rabbis even equated the two. According to their teaching, if you wanted to be righteous, you would give alms. So, naturally, this man had uh, expected to receive this kind of charity from these men, as any good Jew would be prone to do. But he gets surprised, and as we move into scene three, where the story climaxes, we find out what happens in verses six through eight. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened, and with a leap he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Luke tells us his healing was done in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Uh, and we need to be sure that we understand at the outset that when the scriptures use the expression the name of the Lord Jesus there is no superstition or magic involved in this it is true that certain oriental peoples believed that there were certain magical qualities to names but the Jews did not believe that they believed instead that when you used a man's name you were using it to represent everything that he stood for all that he was what he was in his essence everything that he was And that's what Peter is telling this man, that this act that I am performing, I am performing not in my own power or authority, but I am performing in the name of the Lord Jesus, that is, with his power and with his authority. I am acting on the basis of all that he himself is and can offer to you. We uh, have the same expression today when a law officer goes and beats on someone's door and says, open in the name of the law, they're using name in exactly the same way. It's a representation of the power and the authority by which they act. And that's how Peter is using the expression here. Now you'll observe that Peter uh, had to help this man to his feet. If you remember the story of the paralytic in Mark 2, the Lord just commanded the man to pick up his pallet and go home, and he did. But this man, evidently, if I can reconstruct it, uh, probably sat there with kind of a dazed expression on his face. Now, he'd sat there for all of his adult life and all that had ever happened to him as people passed by and occasionally dropped a coin in his cup. 
And all of a sudden, this uh, wild-eyed Jew stops, stares him right in the eyeballs, and tells him to get up and walk. And I imagine he probably just sat there stunned for a moment, and the thoughts that went through his mind were probably something along the order of, what is this Looney Tune Jew doing now? And uh, he just sat there for a moment. So Peter decides he needs to help him to his feet. So he reaches down and seizes this crippled man by the right hand and raises him to his feet. And as he comes to his feet, he could feel the strength returning to his feet and to his ankles. And Luke uses fairly precise medical terminology, being the doctor that he is, to describe the process of physical healing that is taking place. So the man raises to his feet, feels the strength returning to his legs, and probably for the first time in his life, enters into the temple along with Peter and John. But Luke is careful to point out twice that he doesn't just walk casually into the temple precincts with Peter and John, but twice Luke says he went in leaping. Now you can imagine the kind of attention this would have aroused in the quiet decorum of the holy temple precincts to find this banshee hopping around uh, all over the place. And we find that in verses 9 and 10, it did arouse quite a bit of attention. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Probably pretty hard to miss. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So naturally, these people were familiar with this man. They passed through the temple gates every day and repeatedly saw this man, and all of a sudden, this man was a new man. They saw a man they had never seen before, leaping and walking and praising God, and naturally, they were filled with astonishment at what they had seen take place. Now, this uh, raises the question of healing for us today, obviously. This was a clear case of miraculous healing, and it forces us to ask the question, is the same kind of healing going on today? Can we expect today the same kind of healing activity that we see expressed in this passage? Now, there are many Christians, many brothers and sisters of ours, who contend that healing ought to be a regular, everyday practice for the Christian body, that there is no reason for anyone who is a Christian to be sick, to be lame, to be disabled, that all Christians need to do is claim the healing power of Jesus, and they will be healed. Uh, and they find it difficult to think that a Christian could be actually sick or ill. A good friend of mine, Jim Tuck, told me recently of a, an encounter he had, had with a man who believes this way. Uh, this man believes that no Christian should ever be sick. And he came to see Jim one day with uh, a bad case of the sniffles and kind of bloodshot eyes and looked kind of hung over and drugged out. Had obviously been doing battle with a pretty severe cold. So they began talking about this issue of healing and so on, and the man expressed his own belief that Christians should never uh, suffer, should never be ill. So Jim gently pointed out to him the fact that his own condition seemed to contradict his theology. And the man uh, said to Jim quite uh, sincerely, well, you need to realize that what I have is not really a cold. All I have are the symptoms of a cold. See, And that's how he... That's how he weaseled himself out of that one. But we do need to ask this question if we can expect the same kind of uh, action on God's part today. Now, I would say, first of all, that we should not rule out this possibility. God is God. 
He can heal anybody anytime he chooses. He can use any means that he chooses to do so. And we have no business to tell God that he can no longer heal people. Uh, James instructs us in James 5. He says, If any among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore him. And if he has sinned, they will be forgiven him. So we're instructed to ask God for this. It's not wrong to do that, and it's not wrong even at times to expect God to work in this way. So we cannot rule out the possibility that God will heal today just as he did in the first century. But I do have several comments that I want to make, I think, that temper that judgment somewhat. First of all, you remember that in Acts 2, verse 43, Luke is quite clear to point out that these wonders and signs and miracles were taking place through the apostles. Evidently, this ability to heal by God's power was not something that was distributed to the body at large. It was something that was just for the apostles. Paul says something of the same thing in 2 Corinthians 12 when he refers to his own ministry, and he reminds the Corinthians, uh, he says to them that the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So evidently, this supernatural ability to heal was one of the means that God used to confirm the authenticity of his apostles. It was not a gift that was possessed at large by the body. In addition, it confirmed the gospel, I believe. Turn to Hebrews 2 with me for just a moment. And we will see that these signs were not only used to confirm apostles as apostles, but it was used to confirm the message of the gospel. The writer of Hebrews was evidently a second-generation Christian. He was not one of the eyewitnesses of the Lord's earthly life. He writes this way in the middle of verse 3, After it, that is the word of salvation, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. The word was first spoken through the Lord. It was then passed on to the apostles, the witnesses of the word. The writer of Hebrews tells us that when they, these witnesses of the word, when they spoke the word, the word was confirmed by signs and wonders and miracles to a second generation of believers. So evidently, the writer of Hebrews is implying by this that these gifts were exercised only by these first-generation witnesses of the word and were no longer being exercised widely by second-generation Christians and that the purpose of these healing gifts and miracles and so on was to confirm this word of salvation, to tell people clearly that God was now at work in human affairs. So this gift seems to have been primarily for apostles, it seems to have been used for confirmation purposes, the need for which would obviously pass once the gospel had been established. And thirdly, we find as we look through the New Testament that not even the apostles could guarantee healings, even those that had healed in the past. We find in Paul's case, for example, a man who clearly had the gift of healing, that healing was not automatic in his case. Turn to Philippians 2 with me for a moment. In Philippians 2, verses 25 through 30, Paul is uh, writing about a friend of his, and this is a man whose name I would recommend to you if you are in the market for a biblical name for your children. 
His name in verse 25 is Epaphroditus. And he says about Epaphroditus in verse 27, For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So even faced with the near fatal illness of a close friend, Paul was helpless. God in his mercy spared this man, but there was no automatic healing. Turn again to 2 Timothy 4, verse uh, 20. Another couple of good, solid uh, biblical names for your future children. Erastus remained at Corinth, and this is the phrase I want you to catch, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Trophimus, a trusted and needed companion of Paul at this stage in his life. He was reaching the end of his life very lonely, as he writes 2 Timothy. And Trophimus, he had to leave behind because Trophimus was ill. So even Paul could not pull a healing off any time he felt like it. And we also know that in Paul's own case, he had what he called a thorn in the flesh. Three times, he says, I entreated the Lord to remove this from me, and every time the answer was no. Now, another thing we need to remember in this regard is that biblical healings were instantaneous and they were complete. I find that a number of what pass for healings today involve some kind of psychological healing, a temporary control of mind over matter, but that state quickly passes and the individual returns physically to the condition that they had before. That is not the biblical pattern of healing. And then the last... uh, comment I would make on this subject is that God often has a greater purpose in mind than healthy bodies. This was obviously true in Paul's case. Uh, In fact, Paul learned that the reason God left him with that physical affliction was to remind Paul of his own humility, to keep him from exalting himself and becoming arrogant and proud of his status as an apostle. So Paul learned, was constantly reminded of his own humility and weakness because of this thorn in the flesh. So God's concern is not primarily with physique, it's with character. And he will often use flaws in our physique to build in us the glorious, radiant character of the Lord Jesus. Now, what lessons can we learn from this account in Acts chapter 3? Well, there are a couple. One, I think we clearly see that this reminds us again that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus indeed has risen from the dead. He's who he has claimed to be. In his risen life, he is now acting out again in the apostles the same kind of miraculous things that he did incarnate while on earth. Jesus is alive. He is risen. This reminds us of that. Secondly, I think we have for us here a pattern by which we can be agents of healing for others, just as Peter and John were. These miracles of the Lord are called signs in the New Testament. This means that they always point beyond themselves to some deeper reality. And when the Lord healed physically, it was his way of declaring to us that he has the power to heal spiritually and emotionally, that the same power that can restore a broken body can restore a broken life. And we have that same opportunity today as God's people to be agents of healing for those around us. And I suggest that the pattern that we follow is the same one that Peter and John pursued in this chapter. First of all, just as Peter and John fixed their eyes on this man and his broken condition, we too need to be aware of the hurting people around us, to reach out to them, to fix our eyes on them, to be sensitive to their needs and their hurts, to see them as people who are hurting and broken. 
Secondly, we need to do what Peter and John did, is to admit to them, as well as to ourselves, the poverty of human resources in the face of broken lives. People around us have, have hurting and stressful marriages. They are under job pressures, pressures with their children, financial pressures, job pressures. We need to remind them and ourselves that human resources are inadequate for healing and restoration in these areas. And we must never, as a church, depend on these material things to get the work of the kingdom done. When we drift into a dependence upon these material things, upon power politics, upon money, we lose our impact. I'm reminded of a story that uh, I heard of a, an aide to one of the leaders in the Christian church many years ago. He came in to see this leader of the church, and he was counting his money, going over the receipts, and he looked up at this aide and he smiled to him and said, you know, the, uh, the church no longer needs to say, silver and gold, have I none. But the man replied and said, yes, but the church can no longer say either, rise up and walk. So it's a reminder to us that when we depend upon these things, we lose our true source of power. As we move into this new building, for example, it's brick and mortar, it's useful, it's helpful, but we must never think that that's going to... Uh, do anything to mature this body. A building cannot make someone more loving and gentle and faithful and forgiving. It takes only the resurrection power of God at work in life to do that. So that's the third thing we need to do then, is to offer these people new life in Jesus, to encourage them to take hold of his resurrection power to begin to put the pieces of their life back together. And fourthly, like Peter and John did, we may have to help them take that first step of faith, to reach out and to take them by the hand and encourage them to Take that initial step of trusting a new Lord and Master to encourage them, to support them, to follow them up, to be faithful to them and helping them to be established in their new walk of faith with the Lord Jesus. And what we will see happen is the same results that happened in Peter and John's case. These people will, as they did in Peter's case, find new life. They will walk as new people into life. They will find a new source of strength in life. And secondly, other people will be attracted to the Lord Jesus because of the new life they see in people. This fragrance will begin to spread among their friends and their acquaintances as well. One of the men that comes to our Thursday evening Bible study is uh, Dwayne Noel. Uh, one of the men that he works with recently became a Christian. Olaf Wiedemann led this man to the Lord. And as they were preparing to pray, one of the things that this man said to Olaf uh, about Dwayne, who was instrumental in his conversion, he says, you know, I never have been able to figure Dwayne out. I just cannot figure that guy out. How he can remain poised and calm and confident in situations that rattle me to my toes. I've never been able to understand that. And he says, now I think I am beginning to understand what enables Dwayne to live that way. And he placed his faith in Christ. So this fragrance will spread as we find this new source of life, new strength to enable us to walk in resurrection power. The fragrance and radiance will spread to others. I performed a wedding yesterday and it reminded me again of how much we need God's power at work in life to, to walk successfully in our marriages, to love each other as Christ loved the church. We need his power and strength and it's available to us to live this week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for the pattern of ministry that we see here in Peter and John's life. We pray that you will enable us to imitate this pattern. Uh, enable us to be agents of healing for others, to draw them to the true source of life, the Lord Jesus, and point to the life that is available in his name.
teach us how to help others take that first step and to support them and encourage them in their newfound life in Christ. And we trust that as you live out your life in us, the attraction of the gospel and the resurrection life of Christ will indeed spread to others and they will be filled with astonishment and amazement at the kind of lives, the kind of extraordinary lives that very ordinary people can live by your power. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.